Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today I'm joined by Marley de Owis, CEO of Code First Girls. Code First Girls is a social enterprise that aims to increase the number of women in tech and entrepreneurship. Over the past four years, they've provided more than £4 million worth of free tech education, making it the UK's largest provider of free in-person coding courses for women. In 2018, Amali was named Computer Weekly's most influential woman in UK IT, a rise from the previous year's position at number eight. She's winner of the Wise Impact Award, the Women in IT eSkills Initiative of the Year, and London Tech Week Changemaker. And if that's not enough, Amali was recently appointed board member of Ada National College for Digital Skills and is a founding member of Tech Talent Charter and a Commonwealth First Mentor. Amali, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Julia. Lovely to be here. Amali, welcome. Uh, it's Congratulations on being your amazing list of achievements. is incredible. So 2018 Computer Weekly's Most Influential Woman in UK IT is, is quite an achievement. Just tell us a bit about your career journey. What brought you to this position today? It's been a pretty varied journey, I guess, Julia. So I originally studied manufacturing engineering, um, decided in the middle of that that I didn't want to be an engineer, uh, and so decided to go off and have a radical change in career, went and did a degree in shoe design, realised fairly soon that I'd really done the same degree twice, because whether you make shoes or aeroplane propellers, it's the same uh, process that you go through. Um, Realised after working in footwear industry for a year, doing my grad programme, Uh, that actually what I was interested in was thinking about the strategy behind products. So why is it that we create certain things? What's the market like? How do you create better products and services? So I moved to a company called TNS, doing brand and marketing research. So I was a quant researcher, first in the consumer goods division, working on all the really sexy accounts like pet food and shower gel, but actually really, really interesting accounts to cut your teeth on because we're talking about multi-million pound accounts where uh, a small percentage point can sort of swing a market. Um, moved internally there into their financial professional services team. Really interesting time because mobile was just picking up. So got to do some really exciting projects around anything from uh, NFC payment apps, looking at multi-channel comm strategies for digital, or how do we do uh, RFID tagging for products going through financial services. Um, And then I guess off the back of that, actually joined uh, PwC. So first into their research team, then into their thought leadership team, uh, spent a year on secondment to uh, the World Economic Forum. So living in Switzerland, eating cheese and chocolate. And then came back and, and changing the world and, and changing the world. <laughs> yes, yes. With with cheese and chocolate, uh, the most important part. And um, I, I guess came back and, you know, was thinking about what, what next. Uh, and then when the opportunity to run Code First Girls came up, um, it was just, uh, I think, a too good to be missed, really. You know, I'd been advising companies for about a decade on how to improve their businesses. And finally, the opportunity to get my hands dirty, actually grow a business and do so in an industry which I was really passionate about. Um, that was a really, you know, exciting challenge to take on. Amazing. So, so you're four years into it now. And, yes. and uh, tell us a bit about the impact that it's had. We've been so excited with what we've managed to do. And uh, I, I think 
the thing which really excites me is not just the direct impact. So over the last four years, we've, as you mentioned, we've delivered about four million pounds worth of free coding education. We run courses all across the UK and Ireland from uh, Dublin, Belfast, Aberdeen, Southampton, Bristol, Bath, Birmingham, Manchester, Newcastle, Leeds. You know, we're, we're all over this semester. We had 85 locations, so that was 35 locations a year ago, and we've pretty much tripled that, I, I guess. So, so that's on. sort of September to December 2018 sort of timescale. Literally time scale. in wow. the last year. Wow. Um, we've, grown, we've grown sort of threefold. And part of that's a part of our um, 2020 campaign. That amounts to about 6,500 young women taught to code for free so far. This year, we hope to actually go through that 10,000 mark, uh, which is really, really exciting for us. And I think the bit which brings it home was, for example, I was looking at Twitter recently and I saw a tweet from a young woman who had joined one of our courses at Twitter. So Twitter very kindly hosts our courses. She was being taught by another young woman who we had also taught on the on a previous court. And she had been taught by another young woman who had previously done our course and was now working at Twitter. So we had this sort of three generations of Code First Girls alumni and sort of, you know, the Code First Girls alum grandmother, um, which was really, really exciting. And I think Thinking about those six and a half thousand women who've been taught so far, the impact that they have then had on other young women, um, that, that just blows me away. And, and when you think about uh, the organisations, you mentioned Twitter, for example, you, with whom you work, uh, you've, you've got uh, members and also strategic partners as well. Uh, we, spent, we spent a lot of time with corporates talking about why diversity and inclusion matters and why, um, you know, obviously kind of women in tech matter. And is there a disconnect or how do you overcome the potential disconnect? Because this is a great thing to do and everything everybody would agree is a wonderful thing to do. But how do you actually get them signed up is that around alignment of objectives is that around them just ticking a diversity box how do, how do you tackle that i'm pretty pragmatic about why people come to us and it, it was interesting i remember talking to someone a while ago who was sort of saying actually amali you know some of the companies you work with aren't very good at this and my response to him was that's why we work with them because when we're talking about trying to get more women into tech it's not just about supporting the women it's about supporting the companies as well and when it comes to that dialogue that we have with those companies it's it's lovely when people just give me money and i could go to those these companies and just say you know what it's a good thing if we're a good cause give us give us give us some cash um there are lots of really good causes the way that we are able to have hopefully a more compelling discussion with them is when we go to them and say actually more than just it being a good cause, we can help you change your business. And by the way, on top of that, as an extra brownie points, you also help us to do a good thing. So the way that we structure Code First Girls is very much as a commercial enterprise. We, we generate revenues, we sell services, and then we operate as a not-for-profit, plugging all of those revenues back in to running the free coding courses. But that doesn't mean that we, we do anything less as far as the services we offer. They are still commercially relevant services, whether that's coding courses, whether that's training programs, whether that's recruitment, you know, and, and training combined. But we, we support those companies in a way that they could go to any other vendor and get something. And we have to really think about how do we offer something which is a, a point a point of commercial difference to those organisations and actually help them with their business as well. And wh when they talk about changing their businesses, where, where do they normally start? Is it culture? Is it having a specific initiative? Shine some light on that. It really depends on the company. And I would say for when we think about how we create our proposition, it generally buckets into either training services. So this can be running coding courses for your staff. So we were actually at a, you know, last two weeks, we've had 
been at two big financial institutions running coding courses for their staff across levels. Um, we also do work around recruitment. And it's an interesting one because it's not direct headhunting. It's community-based longitudinal recruitment. So we try and help those companies form better relationships with our community so that our community get to know them. In some cases, we do, I guess, more direct programs. So for example, we're running a great program with BT at the moment. Um, it's a four-month intensive boot camp that we're running for them. Not only are we doing the teaching, we've created over 600 hours worth of, of you know, learnings uh, over those four months, uh, but we're also doing the recruitment for the program as well. So that allows us to basically take the community that we've built with our free coding courses and offer them great opportunities whilst also helping BT to basically recruit these people. And what BT have said in that instance is if we have 30 successful graduates, which is the number of people we have, they will offer 30 guaranteed jobs. So this is almost that way to say we're not only helping these women, we're also helping BT with a challenge that they have, which is how do we recruit diverse tech talent? So training programs, um, uh, recruitment in that sort of longitudinal sense. And then the last part, which is really around workshop and advisory. So we do run tech talent workshops with companies around the recruitment and retention parts of their processes. So helping them to understand what are the different things that you can be doing at those various key stages to actually improve the way that you are appealing and supporting um, people from diverse backgrounds. And in those instances, it is diverse backgrounds generally rather than just women, because there are lots of common principles, actually, which work across both. Well, I wanted to ask you about how they, how do they also commit internal resources? Because I can imagine the potential for upskilling their existing internal teams would, would be very strong as well. And, and this question about retention over time, do they, do they uh, apportion a team to work with you so they are also nurturing and coaching and, and retaining? And or do you go in and help improve their internal talent as well. And, and I'm, I'm not talking specifically to BT, I'm just talking about organisations as a whole. Both of those, actually. So in some instances, it is about us training their staff. So both as part of our 2020 campaign, we have a, a, a part of that offer, which is around training the staff of our partners, the junior women in, the, in their companies to actually uh, get tech skills. Part of it is involving them. So when it comes to, for example, our community courses, which is, I guess, what we do with our money, which is we run these free coding courses for young women across the UK, all of the instructors on those courses are volunteers. So we have somewhere in the region of four, five hundred developers across the UK, roughly half male, female, um, who very kindly give their time. And in many instances, it's individuals from the companies who host some of those courses who join us. Uh, and that's a really fantastic way, not only for them to make use of their staff in a way that their staff feel very passionately about, you know, that they they want to give back and they, they want to get involved and they get a huge amount from, from, from that process. But also it enables the women who join for those courses to actually get to know more about the company. So if you're going to, let's say, our course, which is run by Bank of America, you know, it's it, rather than uh, Bank of America turning around and going, we're awesome, just come work for us. It's actually, oh, you know what? Um, this is Sophie. She works at Bank of America. She's working within their data sciences team. You know, she does some really interesting stuff. And that's what changes whether or not you would consider those types of careers. Can you bring a bit of humanity to some of these companies where for someone who's switching industries, you might not actually have that understanding of what is it like to really work in those organisations? 
And you mentioned there, uh, data scientists. Are you seeing some some sort of pockets of uh, new jobs and new roles? I, I hear a lot of people talk about because I'm hosting panels about AI and, and and technology, you know, almost weekly at the moment, which is which is wonderful because I'm hearing people talk about new jobs that didn't exist. I mean, data science is one, and cyber naturally the other, but also around algorithmic engineers. Uh, are you seeing new sort of roles and new uh, specialisms emerge? I think AI and machine learning is probably one of the hottest areas. Um, and, and for a lot of companies, you know, there, there's there's obviously a difference between, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, which is, I guess, you know, self-deciding and, and conscious and that side of things versus what we are often talking about, which is clever algorithms, which help us to do stuff um, and sort of self-learn within a set context. Um, the other area, absolutely, I think data analytics is still key. And I think for a lot of companies, it's it, there's a challenge there because you see the appeal, you see what is the world of possibility, actually trying to do that in a practical sense. And I say this as an ex-quant researcher, pulling together all of those different data sources, doing so in a way that's sensitive to GDPR, you know, being able to actually then make strategic decisions off the back of that. That's a big ask. And I think it's not only um, the challenge of how do we get data specialists, but how do we make non-data specialists, data savvy as well. Because if you're getting someone who's, let's say, setting wider strategies, it might be that they don't know all of the intricacies of, of data uh, analytics, um, but they need to understand how to define that data, how to get the best out of that, and then how to make use of that to set corporate strategies, for example. And one of the things I hear corporates talk about all the time is uh, that whilst there's a very clear appreciation of the need for the business and the technology teams to work you know, very closely together, that quite often the technology teams don't necessarily have that that bigger picture appreciation of uh, the the commercial objectives and, and the commercial challenges. And I wonder whether you play a role in the middle, actually, in terms of the skills development, working with what corporates need, and then helping, you know, girls go into coding and, and developing those skills, but being the blend in the middle. Is, is, is that a statement too far? I, we, we definitely do see ourselves as an intermediary. So our, our job is effectively to you know, help those women who join us find jobs and support the companies to help hire them, get them people and, you know, upskill their staff. I, I would say that when it comes to acting as that intermediary between the engineering side versus the business side, we don't play a direct part in it. However, there is uh, an impact of having people who are coming from non-engineering backgrounds who join engineering teams and upskill into engineering functions and vice versa, people who are uh, coming from engineering or, you know, technologist backgrounds and then going into business roles. So that's something which definitely is impacted by having greater diversity because you're often getting people who are switching careers, bringing a lot of expertise from whatever they were doing before and helping to, I guess, bring a broader picture to, um, you know, maybe sometimes teams where you've got people who have come down just one particular route and sort of helping them to see what those larger impacts might be. And, and that's what true diversity is, is when, when you have you know, the different skills and, and life experiences in your career journey all the way. So so one of the things I picture when, when you're on your coding courses is just this amazing energy of youthful, bright-eyed, young sponges of girls coming through the door, you know, desperate to learn and, when, and working with organisations who are desperate to teach and, and to and, and all this central intention of driving uh, driving change but where do you see I mean do all those girls look alike do they tend to come from the same pockets the same types of schools and institutions um, and where are you seeing the gaps I'm really proud to say that we actually have 
a lot of diversity amongst the women who we bring in. We do host probably about 60% of our courses at university locations. Uh, that's partially a little bit of our legacy, how we we sort of started as, a, as an organisation. And it's also a really great way just to tap into women who are at a stage where they're thinking about their careers. But about 40% of our courses are run at corporate locations. For those courses, and for all of our courses, we have no prerequisites around education. We do not require people to have gone to uni or have done any particular studies. We don't ask them to have any computer science background. We just look for people who want to build things. So the types of questions that we ask on recruitment are, you know, so, so tell us about what excites you about technology. What are the companies who inspire you? Or what would you build if you had these types of skills? And we really have had people who... Uh, are currently doing PhDs in astrophysics, learning alongside people who are being processed as refugees. And they learn together and they learn shoulder to shoulder. And I'm really, really proud to say when we go to our courses, it actually, if you can find any pictures from some of the programs we're running at the moment, just so many incredible women from lots of different backgrounds. And they, they all teach each other. Um, and I think the important thing is around helping those young women, regardless of their background, if they're keen, if they're wanting to learn, we're here to support them. And that's really the key lesson uh, for us. And people think a lot about lifelong teaching. And in the context of many conversations we've had on the podcast, we, we talk a lot about reverse mentoring within organisations and that there is an increasing sort of void between people of a certain age in their career journey. So I'm thinking 50 plus and their relationship with technology versus, you know, young, bright things who come charging through your doors. Um, how, do, how, how do you how, do, do you bring lifelong learning skills or, or, or programs into the mix of what you offer? And any, any, anything surprised you in bringing different generational mixes together? We, we absolutely do work with older women as well. Um, when it comes to our community-free courses, we focus those on the younger women because they are the ones who are, I guess, less likely to have levels of disposable income. But we run what we call our professionals courses, which are for more established women who've been working for a few more years. And we've had doctors, lawyers, handbag designers, marketing associates, you know, people from lots of different backgrounds. I think the difference between those and our community course um, students is probably that in the case of the professionals, more of them are not wanting to become software engineers and, and not sort of, you know, necessarily change uh, their careers, but they're doing these courses around coding to augment their careers. So we have people who are, you know, senior managers or in, in some cases, senior partners in professional services firms. And these might be people who are setting strategies or hiring suppliers, tech suppliers, working with technical colleagues and for all of those individuals and like many of us who didn't necessarily have tech as part of our education process, they've reached a point where they're realizing that this is just this is just business for everyone these days. And unless you feel comfortable with that, it's very difficult to then take on those types of leadership roles um, and be setting sort of, you know, strategies or managing people who are uh, in, from software backgrounds uh, without feeling a little bit more comfortable with the language and what exactly you're asking for. Well, I think that's a beautiful moment to take a pause there and invite Robert and Cynthia to supplement the conversation with any research. In 2017, employment-related search engine Indeed conducted a study to establish whether a career in tech is just for millennials. Well over a third of survey respondents said the average age of their employees was between 31 to 35. Millennials, yes, 
but at the older end of that demographic. By contrast, 27% of respondents said that the average age of employees at their company was 36 to 40 years old, making them members of the younger end of Generation X. The remaining 26% were the over 40s, Generation X and baby boomers. According to a Tech Republic article about older workers in tech, Job seekers aged 40 to 64 are most likely to look for roles that require more years of experience or managerial responsibility, while those aged 21 to 39 are more likely to seek roles requiring experience with specific programming languages, tools or libraries. The top jobs that workers aged over 40 are likely to show interest in are Vice President of Information Technology, Director of Information Technology and Chief Engineer. Just 8.5% of senior leaders in technology are from a minority background, according to the 2018 report from agency Inclusive Boards. The socio-economic background of the tech sector is also very different from the wider UK society. More than 33% of board members and 31% of senior executives attended private schools compared to just 8% of the UK as a whole. And thank you, Cynthia and Robert. And to all our listeners, you'll find the research on the website, www.diversitypodcast.com. And don't forget that's diversity with a C, not with an S. And that's where you'll find all our episodes and you can sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter at diversitypodcast.com. Pod. And Diversity Podcast is available on Bright Talk, Spotify, iTunes, and all good podcast channels. And of course, we'd love a rating. It all helps to promote the show. So, Amani, um, I mean, you must just have the busiest day. I mean, I'm, I'm a female CEO, founder and CEO, and I know what my day looks like. But you mentioned, you know, all your events across the country as well. So, so what motivates you? How do you and how do you look after your energy levels as you're out building this amazing business? Yeah, absolutely. I think anyone who runs a small company or is a founder, you realise that life is just a black hole of work. Um, and, and and I think for me, whilst it does sometimes feel like I always just seem to spend the whole day writing emails, which start with my sincere apologies for the horribly late response. I, you know, it, it, that, that, that that is part of it. You know, there's always more work to do than you have hours to do it. I, I would say that like everyone else, I have productive days and non-productive days. And to a certain extent, I, I don't I don't feel bad about the non-productive ones because there are times when, especially any small company, you're going through growth spurts, you push and you push and you push and you push harder than you think is humanly possible. And so for the times that you aren't having to push, actually, I quite enjoy being lazy. I'll sit at home, read books, you know, or go to a museum or watch TV or whatever else I choose to do. And I, I don't I don't feel guilty about that time because that's my way to keep sane. Um, I, I, I do think you can get into a little bit of a um, sort of a, a mania around productivity, especially in a small company and the associated guilt that you sometimes feel like you should be doing more. And you sometimes forget how much you've actually done. So it, it's almost taking that time sometimes to just self-reflect, take a step back and go, you know what, we've done a lot this year. And almost to sometimes just put it down on paper. It's usually for me when we do our end of year impact report that I suddenly realise how much we've managed to do. Um, and so just to, you know, take take breaks and, you know, take the occasional holiday when you can. Um, but but to kind of be kind to yourself uh, around those times when you're just tired and you're just wanting to, uh, you know, have a bit of a lie in or whatever that is and, um, you know, take things a little bit easier as well. And, and of course, that's a wonderful uh, 
tone to set to everybody who comes through your courses as well, which is about sort of protecting your, your sanity and your mental health, actually, in terms of how we go into modern ways of working and the future of work. Absolutely. And the reality is we live in, we forget that we live in a hugely overstimulated society. You know, we are being bombarded by information and required to be responsive for more of our, pretty much our entire waking day. So it, it is about sort of saying, look, there are times where, yeah, you just need to get on with it and crack on with it and do, do all of those things. But actually, you need to remember that we're not designed to do that. We're not designed to be constantly on. So to, I guess, you know, just to build that as a, as a balance. And I, I do think that there's something which for a lot of our young women, particularly those who are switching industries, they're, they're set themselves some really high goals. You know, they're, they're not sure about what they're going into. They're probably feeling a little bit, you know, maybe a bit vulnerable about, you know, am I good enough for this? Or, you know, everyone else is going to know more on me. So, so they're kind of pushing quite hard to do that, which is fantastic. And that is what's required. But you also need to remember to kind of put things into perspective and just take those breaks and kind of look after yourself because it's so easy to burn out when you're switching uh, or running small businesses, um, which obviously doesn't benefit you in the end. I completely agree. And, and it is interesting when we look ahead to think about how, uh, how, how the world is changing. And I note that we have more than one CEO at the top of the technology businesses of some of the biggest stock exchange groups uh, in, in the world. And I sort of stop and think, you know, is that now that's definite progress? Uh, is it a bit of a tick box? I wonder. And, and I'm interested in what you're optimistic about as you look ahead uh, into the remainder of this year, 2019, and then also out and beyond. I think it's wonderful that we're seeing more women in those senior leadership roles. Um, and in, in a way, I'm not I'm not precious about the fact that a lot of these organisations start with a bit of a tick boxing exercise. If these women are, you know, these amazing women are there, they're good at their jobs. And if that company has been driven to do that because of, I guess, some sort of pressure that they feel they ought to be, that's a that's a start. It's got to start somewhere. And I, I, I would say for a lot of companies, fine to start there. Don't end there. You know, don't don't just see it as only a tick box exercise. By all means, if that's what you need to get yourself going, use that momentum. And but the the the, the point around having these women in these roles, having more women, seeing those women in these roles, that's when you start to see those roles and, and women being associated with those roles as being normal. And that's really why, for me, those types of senior women are really, really powerful motivators because it just enables people to look up and go, okay, this is something we can, I can associate with uh, a woman and the type of career a woman would have. And, and of course, they're, they're not just driven by just putting women on board. These are highly, as you say, accomplished women who have to look after shareholder interest, investor interest, and uh, and of course, customer interest as well. And and as we think about sort of the world of you know large PLCs and also into smaller enterprises as well, uh, are you seeing more of your your cohort of girls coming through just going, actually, I want to set up my own company. I'm going to do, um, I, I want to be a CTO. I want to be CEO. Do you get that wave of energy? We do. And we have a number of Code First Girls alumni who are founders of their own companies and anything from uh, computer games companies through to uh, strategic consultancies through to fintech companies um, lots of really really exciting things and I, I think the 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 thing which for me is lovely is not only do they go and build these organizations they then support others who also want to be working in those kinds of organizations or building those organizations or get advice from others who have gone along the same journey who are part of that community. Um, so really, really incredible women. And you know that kind of blows me away every day when I hear about all the stories of what they get up to. 
It has been the most wonderful conversation. I know, as I said, how busy you are and that you've taken time to spend with us. We're immensely grateful. Um, Amali, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Julia. Lovely to be here. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Robert Pinto-Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.